Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Well, hi again, everyone. I'm 1010 Win Sports Director Mark Ernay. This is On The Mark, where we take a look at the stories behind the stories in the world of sports. Today, we are talking macho the Hector Camacho story. It's a documentary that premiered this month on Showtime. The Emmy award-winning executive producer and director is a New York guy himself. Eric Draft is with us. Hi, Eric. How are you? Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Mark. It's really a pleasure to be here. So I'm watching this Macho documentary, and obviously Hector Camacho is a name that immediately conjures up I think, in the minds of many boxing fans and, and even non-boxing fans, but New Yorkers in general, a flamboyance, a personality, and, and maybe he was the first of those real showmen in the ring as far as the costumes and the get-ups went. You know, obviously, Muhammad Ali was a showman uh, of a different uh, dimension, but, but Hector Camacho, I think, Eric, when you say his name, it conjures up all different kinds of imagery. Yeah, I mean, he definitely ushered in like the new age of boxing, the contemporary uh, charisma that he had, you know, he, the flamboyant costumes. And while there have been many boxers since that have, you know, come in with all kinds of outfits and all kinds of antics, what was so cool about Camacho was how authentic he was. Um, he was just as comfortable wearing those costumes inside the ring as he was outside the ring. In fact, anecdotally, uh, you know, his wife told us, his former wife, uh, Amy, told us, and this wasn't in the film, that she used to say to him, listen, I'm not going out with you like that. You have more fishnet on than I do. <laughs> so he, he really, he dressed the part. He came in and he owned it. And all the costumes were, were great. And he designed them himself. And he really felt he was some kind of superhero with, you know, with all these powers. And he certainly had the power in the ring. And he really was the quintessential uh, New York story coming up from Spanish Harlem. Uh, how did you become a, a Macho Camacho fan? Well, you couldn't be from New York City in the 80s and not be a fan of Hector Camacho. I mean, you either wanted to see him get knocked out or you wanted to see him win, one or the other. There was nobody in the middle that just kind of passively watched this guy. Um, he was brash. He was outspoken. But, you know, being a New Yorker, like, you know, he was one of us. And he, you know, he was just over the top. And, you know, in this day and age of everybody, you know, one-upping each other and doing outlandish things, he was really a pioneer. I mean, 
you know, he would say things that, that pe other people were scared to say. He would do things that other people wouldn't do. And, and that's really why he cut through, you know, the, the noise of, of other athletes and, and, and really rose to the top. There is a certain segment of our audience that remembers his career going all the way back to the Golden Gloves, back when the Golden Gloves was the event uh, for amateur boxing. And obviously your documentary takes us through not only his career and his personal life, but all the way up to his, his very tragic ending uh, in Puerto Rico. And that's where you started. Before you backtracked, uh, you started the piece um, with the, the tragic murder of Hector and his friend down in Bayamon. Uh, and I'm curious to know, um, if you'll tell me, please, why did you start essentially at the end of the story? Well, this was actually one of the hardest films that I've made because when I first started to make the film, I really wanted to like find out who killed Hector Camacho. After seven years, no arrests, you know, there had to be more answers than the press was reporting. The story was starting to just kind of fade away. His legacy was starting to fade away. So originally when I went down there, I started to, I started with going to the Bayamon police. I went and started interviewing uh, potential witnesses. Uh, and I start. I went to the scene of the crime. And I really went down that track for a long time. I got in touch with some FBI agents that I had known from other projects um, or that I know from other projects. And what happened was I got so far into the investigation and I made a rough cut that about six months ago, <clears throat> I said to myself, what's lost in this is Hector's story, his life. I had too much about his death and not about his life. So I actually kind of like took it all apart, redid a little bit of it, and realized that in order to understand his death, you really had to understand his life. And so while I start out on his death, because that is, you know, the, the launching point, uh, I really delved right into his life in order to get back to his death. And it really, it, it struck me because this story about this character, this real life character uh, through the course of his boxing career and again, his personal life with his marriage and his children um, and his relationship with his mom, uh, it, it seemed to me at least that the story that you told turned into sort of a, a dateline or a CSI episode? Well, it, again, you know, that was a decision I made six months ago. When I first, I had a rough cut that basically started at the murder, went to his career, went back to the murder, back and forth. I called it the weave. And, it, and while it worked and it was, you know, I had the best team working uh, with me, uh, great editors, great producer, Danielle and uh, Nasana. And um, while it worked, it didn't celebrate him enough. It, 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 it was too much of an investigation, in, in my opinion, although it was great watching and it's fascinating to understand all the twists and turns of the investigation and how these guys, these hitmen got through the fingertips of the police, especially the night of the murder and the, um, after the police chase. Um, but so what I did was I kind of took out in the middle 
the investigation laid out his story through his mom, who's still searching uh, for, for closure. And then the film at the last kind of quarter takes a turn into almost a CSI investigation, but more of an explanation. Um, I mean, my investigation took me to Florida. It took me to witnesses. It took me to suspect homes. It took me to some really dangerous places that are not in the film. Um, and I took all of that out because, again, I had like 90 minutes and it's 94 minutes. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I just, there was so much life and so much investigation to cram into one uh, documentary that I had to make some hard decisions. It's funny. I have so many notes that I took while I was watching this, and it's a terrific documentary, and I, I highly recommend it. You don't have to be a boxing fan. You have to be a fan of people uh, and characters, and certainly uh, Hector Camacho was a character, but what I, and I don't want to give away all the goodies, but uh, if you don't mind me asking, what one of the stories in particular that struck me was the Mexican border tale that his pal Rudy Gonzalez told. And if you don't mind getting into that just a little bit, I'd really appreciate it. Sure. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a classic story of Camacho, about Camacho, because it kind of identified and was emblematic of his persona and his personal struggle. Uh, he was driving uh, Rudy Gonzalez, who was like his wingman, bodyguard, best friend. They went to school, elementary school together. Uh, and, and that was one of the other things about Camacho. I mean, you know, he was a very loyal friend and to the end. And, and, you know, the same streets that made him a hero are the same streets that kind of did him in at the end. But regardless, he was driving with Rudy uh, in a brand new Jaguar uh, from California and they were heading to Florida. So obviously they were going to go west to east. And uh, Rudy was driving and he was getting tired. And he said, hey, Mach, can you, uh, can you take over the wheel for a little bit? You know, I'm tired. Or, or he actually said, let's check into a hotel. And Camacho was like, no, I'll drive. I'll drive. And he goes, okay. So Rudy's taking a little siesta as Camacho's driving. And he looks. And all of a sudden Camacho, you know, nods him. And he says, hey, I need money for the toll. And Rudy says, money for the toll? What toll? You know, they're obviously going on an interstate across the country. Why would they need money for the toll? Well, he said, I don't know. Here it is. And, and he realized that it was going towards the border, the border of Mexico. And, and what's not in the film, but I'll, I'll let you know, is that he actually saw a billboard for a strip club and was going towards the strip club, which happened to be, you know, in, uh, in the Mexican border, the U.S.-Mexican border. So anyway, they're in line to go across the, the border and they can't get out of the line because they're already in it when Rudy wakes up. And Camacho said, the, the other problem is, is I've got something in the trunk. And apparently he had uh, a key, kilo of cocaine. So Rudy said, oh my God, you know, this is the worst. So he said real quick, it was a, it was a convertible. He said, I want you to jump out onto the hood of the car, I'll drive, and I want you to start going macho time. I want Chavez, I want Chavez. And this was before the Chavez fight, so everybody was anticipating this fight, and they started going crazy. And everybody was going crazy. And even though the dog started scratching at the car for the cocaine, the border uh, patrol got so involved in the antics that they said, come on through and you can turn around. On their way back, you know, they're back in the, in the state safely. Uh, driving again, 
Camacho says, wow, that's it. I'm done. No more drugs. I'm finished with it. Pull over. So they pull over. He digs a hole and he puts the kilo into the hole. He says, I'm through. They say, great. Well, that's good because I'm tired. And let's go check into a motel and, you know, sleep for a couple hours. So they get into a motel. They're, you know, Rudy goes to sleep. He opens his eyes and Camacho's gone. He's like, what the hell? Where'd he go? About 20 minutes later, Camacho comes into the room all dirty from, from, you know, with dirt all over him. And he said, Rudy, Rudy, do you remember where, where I, I dug and left the kilo? I've been digging all night. So, you know, basically, you know, it, it, it kind of goes to show you that, you know, this addiction he had uh, was more, uh, you know, overpowering than his uh, rationale and logic of, of getting rid of it. Really was uh, remarkable. And, and I guess if you knew even a little bit about Camacho's background, it, it didn't surprise you much that he wound up in that state because he was just so over the top with almost everything he did, right? Yeah, I mean, everything he did was a, was a production, a show. It had to be macho time was his mantra, whether it be the big jewelry, big outfits, the, you know, you know, some of his arrests were crazy. I mean, one of his arrests, and he had many, and some of them were, were really, you know, to a serious nature. But one of them was that, and again, this isn't in the film, he, uh, he got caught going through uh, at a computer store. Uh, he tried to steal computers. He, he gave them a computer, apparently, to fix. They didn't fix it in time. He went at night and crawled through a roof to try to go grab it and fell through the roof and wound up getting caught by the police, uh, you know, uh, trying to steal seven computers through the roof. So, like, even his crimes were, were over the top. Ay, ay, ay. Fast forwarding uh, to November of, uh, of 2012, and um, Macho and a friend are, are shot and killed in Bayamon, uh, Puerto Rico. Rudy uh, said he had tried to get him back to New York City. Um, in, in what you've been able to learn over these years, uh, had he come back to New York City, um, do you think Hector Camacho would still be with us? You know, it's a good question. I, I actually do. I actually do. I, I, I would hope that, uh, you know, being home, things might have been different. His family is a wonderful family, and, and maybe perhaps um, they would have leaned on him a little bit harder to, to change his ways. Um, but Puerto Rico is so dangerous. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really lawless um, in certain parts. And, you know, with Hurricane Maria uh, devastating and ravaging the, the, the country and the, the government with the corruption and being voted out, and the blackouts and the, you know, pandemic and the police force, which is, you know, there's only one third of murders or murders are ever solved. And they have the second largest police force in the U.S. and the, and its territory, second only to New York. So, it's dangerous down there and he just lived like the macho man and the younger generation, you know, they didn't necessarily know who he was or, or maybe they didn't care. So something bad was going to happen. He was hanging out with bad people. And, uh, you know, unfortunately uh, that's, you know, the, it was inevitable. 
So he was given essentially a state funeral in Puerto Rico. And then uh, after lying in state for three days down there, they bring his body back up here. And I remember uh, seeing the procession uh, at the time through Spanish Harlem. And again, he gets a hero's welcome uh, that unfortunately, of course, he couldn't enjoy. Yeah, you know, he really was the hero of the streets. Lou DiBella, you know, the great promoter and one of the executive producers on the film, he he really kind of, you know, laid it out and, and said it right. You know, it's like there might have been better Puerto Rican boxers out there, Trinidad, Cotto. I mean, you know, there were maybe, perhaps, um, but none were the hero of the streets like Camacho was. And and unfortunately, you know, those streets are what did him in. But, you know, people like to see their heroes also have human qualities, have human failings. And he certainly did. And he was appealing because he failed publicly, but he got he dusted himself off and got back into the ring. And 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 that's what I think appealed to so many. But the sad thing is, is that if Puerto Rico can't solve you know, the murder of, the, of their hero of the streets, then whose murder can they solve? Yeah, that's a, a really good point. Now, um, toward the end of the documentary, um, you show uh, his mom, Maria, uh, being summoned, essentially, to Puerto Rico. Uh, the case had been transferred to the San Juan Police Department in concert with the FBI. They tell her they know who did the murder seven years earlier. And as you tell us at the very end of the piece, we still don't know who that is. Well, we have a pretty good idea who it is. Um, there, there were, you know, there's always the, the who and the why. The who we think we know, there were two hitmen. Uh, and we believe, and one of them was uh, subsequently gone down in a Denny's parking lot um, uh, after the, uh, Camacho's murder. And the other one is now in jail on unrelated charges. They believe that he is indeed the shooter, uh, but they but they are reluctant to kind of go public with that yet. And there are still more. Uh, there's still one or two more suspects that they think could have been involved. Uh, the why is very interesting too. Um, I lay it out in the film, you know, a couple of theories, um, but, you know, we're pretty sure that the why was done for money. And uh, there's, I, I don't want to really get into the details because it is an active investigation. Right. The last thing I'd want to do is kind of like hamper it. Okay. And uh, the cab driver, that you featured uh, in several segments. Uh, he apparently was also killed, uh, as you told us, four months after the final interview you did with him, but there have also been no arrests in that case? Correct. I mean, again, you know, it's the, the arrest rate is just uh, abysmal. I mean, you know, and we're still trying to figure out some details on that murder as well, if it was related or not. Uh, it was a pretty grisly uh, murder. He was shot in the face. Uh, you know, there's, there's a story on the streets that it was an altercation uh, on his birthday. 
uh, and he got, you know, somebody just shot him. And then there's, there's another theory uh, that, that, that the police are looking into as well. Gut feeling, Eric, uh, how likely is it that the two incidents are tied together? You know, I don't, I really don't know. I hope, I really hope it wasn't related because I, as a journalist, you hate to think that your involvement uh, in, in a, in an investigation would ever lead to the harm of anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, we, you and I were talking before we started to record this and, and you um, were a journalist by trade. Uh, working for CNN and Fox. How did you get into boxing and documentary making? Yeah, it, it kind of came together, kind of like uh, the peanut butter and chocolate in a recess. Uh, I, uh, I was working at, at, at Fox at the time, and, uh, you know, I started getting assigned some some boxing uh, um, press conferences and, and, and assignments. I covered, I actually covered Leonard and, and, and uh, Camacho in 97. And then I wound up covering Tyson and, and Holyfield. And I, I, you know, I was always a, a fan of the big fights, never a, 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 a big boxing fan though. Um, and a friend of mine invited me to go to a boxing show up in Yonkers. And I was like, boxing? Oh, club show? I'd never been. And I went. It was Joe DeGuardia, the, the uh, Bronx-based promoter. And uh, I went in. It was a field house in the uh, parking lot of Yonkers Raceway. And I think that's usually where they use – they auction off horses and they take horses around. And, you know, in the field house, they put up bleachers and, you know, there was this ring in the middle and there was cigar smoke and there was, you know, all the outfits the women were wearing and the, the wise guys and the commission. And it was this world I had never, ever been exposed to. And I was just like – jaw-dropping to see it and I went up to Joe and I said Joe you know I this is so cool and I took his card and I said I'd love to work for you someday and he said oh well you work in the press what do you want to do I said he said you can do PR I was like okay and little did I know that PR was uh you know renting a van and picking up the fighters and hotels and motels and at airports and taking them for uh, blood work. But in boxing, you know, that's the rite of passage. You got to do everything. And, you know, I was hungry. And, um, and so I, uh, I worked my way up to, to representing some female fighters and then some male fighters. And, and then I started doing some production and, uh, and then in uh, 2005, I was in the gym of uh, the Morris Park boxing gym and uh, looking for fighters and talking to some fighters. And there was a guy there named Louis Resto. And Louis Resto is good looking Puerto Rican trainer, a little older. He wasn't a fighter anymore, but working with these kids and everybody was like, oh, that's Louis Resto. And they were whispering. That was the guy that was banned from the sport of boxing for life that went to jail and, and he's never allowed to work in boxing again. I'm like, Oh, who? and I, and so I, I my journalistic instincts uh, kicked in mm. and I went to a friend of mine and I said, Hey, you want to do a documentary? He goes, I've never done one. I said, neither have I. And, uh, and we made assault in the ring. I can give you more detail about that if you like. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I, and sadly, uh, I remember that night, um, it, in fact, it, I, I'm, I'm, for whatever reason, numbers and dates stick in my head. And 
Um, fans of, of a certain vintage recall very easily June 17th of 1994 as it relates to the Rangers, the Knicks, and the, uh, the O.J. Simpson white Bronco chase. But 11 years before that, interestingly enough, I think it was June 16th, right, of 1983, uh, the, the, the resto Billy Collins Jr. fight was on the card with Roberto Duran and Davey Moore at the Garden. Yeah, that's right. So on the undercard was uh, Louis Resto and Billy Collins Jr. And Billy Collins was like this good-looking Irish fighter, undefeated. He was being promoted by Top Rank and and Bob Arum, arguably the best promoter ever. And he was he was destined to you know to be someone. And they were really building him up. And Louis Resto was this like cagey hard, you know, uh, hard-nosed Puerto Rican kid from the Bronx who was kind of like a getting to the journeyman status. And he was like a stepping stone. And he wasn't supposed to win by any, by any measure. And uh, by the end of the fight, Billy Collins looked like he had elephantitis. His yeah. face was so blown up and bruised and purple. His eyes couldn't even be – he couldn't even see his eyeballs anymore. And Resto went over to the corner – of Collins to, you know, as a good sport might, you know, say, hey, good fight. And Collins's father, who was a former fighter himself, grabbed the glove to shake it and realized that there wasn't any padding in the gloves. He said, the padding, there's no padding in these gloves. There's no padding in these gloves. And Resto looks back to his corner where he sees Panama Lewis, his trainer, and Panama Lewis comes over and goes, those are the gloves they gave us. Those are the gloves they gave us. What ensued after that was a terrible tragedy. Collins, less than eight months later, you know, with permanent eye damage, you know, uh, killed himself in a car, uh, driving it over a cliff. Some say alcohol, some say because he couldn't see, and some say suicide. Yeah. And, uh, and Resto and his trainer, Panama Lewis, were uh, tried sentenced to three years in jail, banned from the sport of boxing for life. And I find Resto, 25 years later, sleeping in the basement of this dark and dingy basement in the, in the, in the Bronx, of the gym in the Bronx, proclaiming his innocence. So that's why I decided to make the documentary. And what ensued after that, you know, was a, uh, was a story of redemption. And we actually find new information that had never been known before. Uh, which, you know, uh, kind of moves the case a little bit forward, we thought. Uh, but you got to watch the film, and it's actually coming back out on Showtime. It's called Assault in the Ring. And um, I think it's being released on Showtime regular analog uh, on December 29th, and it'll be available on their VOD platforms pretty soon. Oh, nice. And, of course, you have also done the No Moss documentary for ESPN, the 30 for 30, about uh, – Duran and Sugar Ray Leonard uh, that takes us not only through their first fight in Montreal in June of 1980, but the rematch at the Superdome in New Orleans, that, that fateful night for Duran and, and really for everything. I mean, think about everything he did before and after that night. Um, basically, his tombstone will read Roberto Duran, no mas. Yeah, I mean, certainly he was, you know, the what every Latino boxing fan wants. He was, 
you know, a voracious fighter and he just, for, you know, he just stood there and fought and he was macho and he was strong and people just couldn't understand how he could say no mas and quit uh, in that second fight after he had so handily beat Leonard the first match. So, you know, the, the film really looks into, you know, what, why did he say that? And, and the films I do, you know, I like to de describe them like the story of that night is already done. There's no going back and changing that story. It's done. It's in the history book. Same thing with, you know, what happened on June 16th, 1983. Same thing that happened with Macho dying on November 24, 2012. Those stories are done. What my films, what I try to do is find those that are still living with the consequences of that night and how they're dealing with it, if there is any closure, if there is any redemption or any kind of um, information that tells us a little bit more about humanity. You know, I'm interested in the human stories uh, that, that, that come out of those, you know, epic nights or incidents. So Eric, I'm compelled to ask uh, which story that you've told so far in your career uh, and documented uh, was your favorite story to tell? You know, I don't really have, they're all like, you know, all the films I've been so lucky to kind of been, to be able to tell the stories that I've been interested in. You know, Renee Richards, I told that story for ESPN. And, you know, that was again, a human interest story. It really, I was really fascinated with, her, uh, her son uh, relationship, the relationship with her son, um, who, you know, is, you know, how he was reconciling with, with, with his father's, you know, transformation to a female and her success as a uh, tennis player. Um, you know, I did a short film for on Pete Rose um, signing autographs uh, in the basement of uh, Caesar's, uh, you know, in the mall of Caesar's uh, palace in, in Vegas. And here's this amazing icon, a guy that I just like grew up like, that's the hit king and, and this fall from grace. And then he's kind of like, you know, you know, entrapped in his own legacy behind the stanchions, having to sign autographs. Like that's, that's it. That's it. That's how, that's where he went from, from the high and from being the best hitter in the world to his fall from grace and, and whether he's really come to terms with it and whether he could really look like, you know, in the face and be honest for, for, for one, you know, for one time about, about his, his past. So all the stories that I've been able to tell so far, you know, have been really on their own special. So I don't, I, I don't really think one of them is more special than the other. And then, you know, there was a film I EP'd, which I thought, and I didn't direct and I didn't make it. I, I gave a little bit of, of help, but there's this, this story of Johnny Tapia, which is on HBO. I think it's, it's streaming somewhere now. A remarkable story. I mean, haunting, haunting the way the director was able to get this last interview uh, of his uh, before he died and how Tapia's tragic story of his mother being murdered and, and fighting and fighting through that. It's just, it's just amazing. So these are the stories that, that call out to me. Um, there's so many more out there. Um, and I'm just so grateful to be able to, to, to bring them to, you know, to a wider distribution. And you've also worked on a series of short films for ESPN and Marvel 
that involved the likes of Dwight Howard, Bryce Harper, Danica Patrick, uh, Phil Mickelson, and Colin Kaepernick, among others. So what was that experience like? That was a really, really amazing experience. Um, you know, I am. I was. I went into it not a huge Marvel uh, fan. Not that I wasn't a fan. I just didn't know that much about comics. And and you know, really, I, I had a quick education about you know, like the difference between um, you know a DC comic uh, superhero and a Marvel, where the DC comic book hero is like Superman, who's flawless in and out of his costume, or you know, with his powers and and just a perfect person and a perfect hero. Whereas these Marvel heroes are more like macho they're like they have these like flaws that make them so appealing and yet they have these superpowers and like we want to be relate they're relatable but yet they're they're also they're also human um they're also super uh, they have superpowers and this series what was really cool about it was that they all of the names of the the athletes you just named who are all you know the top of their game they all had this moment where they kind of found their power they found their ability to kick a soccer ball shoot a basket basketball uh hit a golf ball um hit a baseball whatever it was they found their power at this moment and it's usually between like 11 and 13 years old where they they find this it could be a little bit younger sometimes and then what they do with it um they have first before they you know they have to have some obstacle that they get over they have to have something that gets in their way and then they have to work so hard to overcome that that they take that power and do something great and all of those stories have those three elements the discovery of their power the overcoming of some obstacle and the you know the ability to use that power for good and of course uh, colin kaepernick especially has spent the last few years trying to overcome all different kinds of obstacles um, after you uh, you did this piece. Um, let me get back to Pete Rose real quick. Um, where are you on him and the Hall of Fame? Um, I think he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, you know, I... Uh, but let me also say that I am... I have a project that, that I, I, haven't, I haven't released yet on him, and, and I'm not sure when that will be done. It's something I started working on. So I don't want to necessarily say that I think he'll be in the Hall of Fame. Um, but based on his play alone, um, he should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, the Hall of Fame should really be about what you do on the field. Um, I understand the brand of baseball and uh, you know wanting their heroes to kind of be more like DC heroes. But the <laughs> right. truth is, is that these heroes are Marvel's heroes. See, they have flaws. They, and sometimes it's those flaws that make them great. You know, he's such an addict. He just needs to win. He needs to win. You know, that's why he's, he's a gambler, you know. You know, he's, he's, he gets a high off that win. And that same kind of high that, that, that keeps him wanting to win all the time is what made him a great hitter. So you can't take one without one part of him without the other. I like the way you tied it back to the uh, to the Marvel thing. Um, I and and at the same time you segued into my next topic. What is next for Eric Drath? 
Well, I've got a great project. Was just we're just working on the final touches on the rough cut on legendary Nick uh, Dick Barnett. Uh, really, it's a, a project I've been shooting since 2011, and um, it centers on his quest to get his college basketball team, the Tennessee State uh, University, Tennessee A&I team, as it was called, from 1957, 58, 59, inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. But it's really a story of perseverance, persistence, um, of one man's quest to make sure that the legacy of his team doesn't slip through the cracks of history. And not so much for himself, but for the younger students out there that are at TSU now that have no idea of what that team did for the school. So that's one of the projects. And then I'm working on a, another boxing uh, project, which I, I can't really talk about now, but uh, hopefully I can come back and talk about it. Uh, it's a multi-part series that, that I'm uh, looking to announce soon. Awesome. Well, I, I look forward to uh, a rematch, if you will. I've had a chance over the years to uh, to interact with Dick at St. John's because he's been doing some work uh, there over the over the years uh, following his NBA career. So, uh, in wrapping up, let me ask you this: um, you you wouldn't nail down your favorite story to tell so far, but uh, which story is out there that you can't wait to be able to tell us? Huh. Well, that's the one I'm working on now that I can't tell you. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. I've been trying to, you know, trying to get off the ground for, geez, almost 10 years. It's, uh, but, you know, it's like I, can, I want it so bad I can taste it. You know, it's like, you know, when you want something and you, you almost, you play angry. Like, I, I just, I'm burning inside to do it. I want to make this film so badly. I just need to convince the executives to let me make it. Nice. Well, good luck. Thank and you. I, uh, I appreciate the time. I've enjoyed the time with you. Uh, Likewise. I've enjoyed the chat. Uh, I learned a lot from watching these pieces that you've put together. I will definitely go back and revisit the uh, Resto Collins night at the garden. Uh, as I was telling you earlier, I, I rewatched the Davey Moore, Roberto Duran fight from that night. And uh, it, it still strikes me that uh, Duran just, was so vicious and I don't know that he intended to be I I think it was more and you tell me how you feel I I think it was more a product of the the referee not stepping in and you know finally uh, Davey Moore's corner threw in the towel in the eighth round but uh, that fight probably should have been stopped a lot sooner well well interestingly that was his comeback fight it was his birthday and it was also his comeback fight from uh, no Mas. yeah so there was a lot of there was a lot of excitement in the air, and everybody who was anybody was there that night in the garden, including uh, those watching it. Well, again, thank you for the time. Uh, this is Eric Draft, the Emmy Award-winning executive producer, director, and uh, the brains behind Macho, the Hector Camacho story. You can watch it on Showtime. And uh, Cornered: A Life Caught in the Ring is also coming back to Showtime. That. Uh, that Eric was behind that one uh, detailing Resto and Collins Jr. from 1983 at the Garden. Eric, thanks again. Really do appreciate the time. Happy holidays. Thank you. You too. I'm Mark Renee. That is Eric Drath, and you're on the mark.
We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.